This morning's reading is Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew chapter 6, making our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, whew. Confessions of a pastor. Uh, when I was looking at this passage several months ago, and even last week, I was dreading preaching it. Uh, I'll tell you why. Um, I have preached on fasting several times in the past ten years, and it is one of those teachings that is not well received by our culture. Um, not well received by the church. And most times it's like, yeah, 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 what's the next point? Um, and so I confess to you that I did not approach this text uh, as I should have initially. And God was faithful to say to me in a very loving way, you fool, there is so much here for you to know, Keith, and for you to share with the members of my church now study my word. And so I did. And it turned out to be one of, um, there are times when the studies just keep going and you're overwhelmed with a sense of awe and wonder of God. And so by God's grace, I will be able to share that with you this morning as well. We're, we're looking at the third, the third act of righteousness. In, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus took on three, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And the, the entire movement of this teaching has been, don't do these acts of righteousness for the wrong reasons. Don't do them to be seen by men. Don't do them to receive glory or get your own reward. He said, it, it, when you pray, and when you fast, and when you give, and when you engage in any act of righteousness that you, we're called to and commanded to, and indeed it's good for us. He said, there must be a corresponding internal rightness, an internal desire, an entire t- internal movement that matches what you do on the outside. The two have to go hand in hand. He uses the word hypocrite a lot, and he does here as well in this passage. When we get to this passage today on fasting, I don't want you to... To just check out and say, you know what, I don't fast, I'm not going to fast, and therefore can we just go to the last set of songs? And let's expedite this because I'm a little hungry and I can smell the food, so let's eat. <laughs> I, want, I want us to be patient this morning with God's word. And by his grace, we will hear, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will respond, and fasting will not become something that we dismiss or, or consider antiquated, but something we actually do. And we do it in the way that Christ teaches, which I think is one of the fundamental problems we have today. Throughout the history of the church, certain teachings, certain disciplines have been overemphasized and underemphasized. I mean, we've seen throughout the history the Lord's Supper, baptism, church membership. I mean, those things have been at times pushed to a place that have eclipsed the gospel itself. At times in the history of the church... Other teachings, other disciplines, other truths have been underemphasized. We see this today in the contemporary church. We see this in the teaching on community, biblical community. We see it in the teaching on purity, not emphasized. And unfortunately, we see it in fasting. Um, I mean, I, I don't know about you. If I, if I gave you a quiz, uh, which I will not do, but if I did, and I were to ask you, when was the last time you thought about fasting? 
I mean, not, not thought about doing it, just thought about fasting as a biblical discipline. When was the last time? When was the last time you talked about it, you studied it, and of course, the question, when was the last time you did it? When was the last time that you actually engaged in a fast? Not a fast to lose weight. <laughs> not a fast because you're having surgery the next day. And not a fast because you've been invited over to someone's house and you do not want to eat their food. Right? A spiritual fast, a means of grace to bring about humility, to usher you into the presence of God, to be changed, to be sanctified, to grow. It is, and most would agree, it's a lost discipline today. And I get why. I mean, I do. The evangelical church, in response to the perversion of Catholicism, moved away from several things, several good things as well, one of which is fasting. Fasting in the Catholic church was completely perverted. And so in the Protestant movement of the 16th century and all the way to the present day, fasting is one of those things we said, the Catholics were doing that, we're not going to do that. And so we've kind of just wiped it away altogether. In our culture, in a culture that, you know, where we love food, I mean, we, we love food. And don't, you can say, no, pastor. No, we do. We love food. And we have, I think the last number I saw that one in three Americans is, is considered obese. The food on our plates... You do know this, that since the 1950s, it's now four times more than it was before in the 1950s. So when you go to a restaurant and you order a plate of food, it's four times greater than it was in the 1950s. It's, I mean, it's amazing. I'm not going to digress here too much. But when I go out to eat and I order a plate of food, there's no way I can eat it. Why? We love it. I mean, it is an idol. You take that, you take the, the rejection from Catholicism, you take the idol of food, and you couple it with Satan loving us not fasting. Because he knows that when we fast, we go in the presence of God. And what happens? It's dead. I mean, fasting is dead in the contemporary church. It's not something that we do like we pray and like we study the sacred scriptures. It is a lost discipline. And Christ has every intention of making sure that it comes back. Matthew chapter 6 on fasting. We must ask ourselves, what is the place of fasting for us today? I mean, where does it fit in our lives as Christians? Does it fit at all? Can we skip this part? Yeah, he's dealing with hypocrisy. Can we just deal with that part and not actually look at the fasting? The answer is no, because it does have a place. It has a real place in the lives of contemporary Christians in America. Four things I want to look at. The precedence, historical and biblical. Two, the purpose. Why fast? Why should I go hungry? Really? Three, the pitfalls, the hypocrisy, which Jesus deals with. And then four, the power. Precedence, purpose, pitfalls, power. I didn't try to do the P's. They came out. Praise God. Here we go. Ready? The precedence for fasting. I'm not that creative. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, Jesus says, when you fast. And you go, are you going to stop there? Yeah, we have to because the implication is that you're going to fast. He's not saying if you fast or if you feel like fasting. He's saying when you fast. If you're a kingdom citizen, then fasting will be part of the means of grace, the disciplines of the faith that you do to be sanctified, to grow closer to my Father. So he immediately starts off with the assumption that we will be fasting. And you go, "Uh uh-oh. That's a good uh uh-oh. That's right. In the culture that he was teaching, I mean, their history was a history commingled with fasting. You could not make a distinction between the Jewish history and prayer no more than you could the Jewish history of of um, fasting and other disciplines of the faith. In fact, we have the only prescribed national fast. There's only one in the Old Testament. We think there are many because there were many reasons they fasted, but there was only one. It was on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, 
which I know that you just read last week and you have memorized. So you go, I know that one. They also, though, the Jews also fasted in commemoration of Jerusalem, the, the captured Jerusalem, Jeremiah 52, the burning of the temple, Zechariah 7, the death of Gedaliah, the governor that was appointed by Nebuchadnezzar, Jeremiah 41, and the commencement of the attack on Jerusalem and Zechariah 8. So they had, they're actually, that with Yom Kippur, they had four, five times that they nationally fasted. In addition to times of crisis, if, if there was impending judgment by God or if the, the autumn rain did not fall, they would nationally gather and they would fast to petition God, to seek God's favor, to humble themselves in his presence. In addition to the national fast, they fasted personally. It was something that they did, usually in response to tragedy, in response to a catastrophe, in response to sin as, a, as an external sign of remorse over sin. And there are so many. I'm just going to give you a couple here. Moses, he fasted for 40 days following Israel's sin, worshiping the golden calf in Deuteronomy chapter 9. David and the people fasted when King Saul and Jonathan, remember they were killed in battle in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Even wicked King Ahab, he fasted. He fasted in 1 Kings chapter 21 to be forgiven by God for the evil that he had committed in his eyes. And of course... For those of you who were here for the Nehemiah series, Nehemiah chapter 1 finds out the dilapidated state of his city, and he fasts. He fasts before God. It was practiced regularly. So this teaching, far from them going, fasting, what is that? They'd say, oh, we know that. We know exactly what it is because we do it. And it actually made its way. It wasn't just a, a Jewish historical teaching. It made its way into the New Testament. And we see fasting in the New Testament as well. In fact, the Pharisees, although criticized by Christ for their hypocrisy in the act, they fasted twice a week. Twice a week! Jesus Christ fasted for 40 days before the temptation in the desert with Satan. 40 days. We'll get back to that. 40 days. In Matthew chapter 9, do you remember John's disciples came up to Jesus and they said, hey, 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 your guys are not fasting. Mm, what's going on? John's disciples are fasting. Your guys are not fasting. Are they less pious? Are they less holy? Jesus' response is fantastic. He says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, he says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? And then he says, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. They said, there's going to come a time when they'll fast and it'll be a right fast. After his death, after his resurrection, and after his ascension, fasting will become part of their discipline as well. So he's saying his disciples will fast. Um, following the transfiguration, remember Christ comes down after being uh, the Shekinah glory coming upon him in front of Peter, James, and John, and he comes down to a dilemma the disciples had encountered. They're trying to, to cast a demon out of a boy, and they can't do it. Remember this? And he's a little edgy, and he says, oh, how long, how long, how long will I have to deal with this? And then he says, in Mark chapter 9, he said, this kind of demon can come out only by prayer and fasting. The church at Antioch, before they sent out Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, the church fasted. Second Corinthians, Paul identifies fasting as a mark of his ministry. During the first three centuries of the church, believers fasted before they were baptized. They fasted before they received communion. And they fasted, pastors fasted before they entered the pastorate. In other words, what am I saying? Fasting, far from being abnormal or eccentric or strange has always been part of the fabric of God's people. Old Testament, New Testament, history of the church. God's people have always fasted. 
So we have to ask ourselves a very difficult question. Are we going to be the first generation in the history of God's people that stop this discipline? And if so, if we're going to be the first people to say, we're done with fasting, is that wise? Is that wise in light of the Old Testament, in light of the New Testament, in light of the history of the church? Is it wise for us to say, no, no, we don't need to fast? You can answer that question. Is it wise? So what's the purpose? Why fast? Why fast at all? If you have read through the Old Testament, you see that most fasting is attached to painful events. Something's happened. A loved one dies, people would fast in their mourning. Uh, a, a, a catastrophic national event, the, the, the coming of an enemy or the invasion of an enemy or the failure of a crop, something, there was a catalyst for fasting. And it was usually painful and it usually was a result of, of loss of life um, or it was a result of sin and remorse toward God. That same impetus carries its way into the New Testament with one interesting distinction. In the New Testament, we find people fasting voluntarily. In that they didn't wait for someone to die and then they'd fast. They didn't wait for sin and conviction and repentance and then they'd fast. They, they actually engaged in what was, in the Greek it's called a kesis. And it's voluntary crisis. Eugene Peterson talks about it beautifully. He says that we enter into a voluntary crisis to be humbled before God even when times are good. When times are, are plentiful and there's, there's no catastrophe and there's no death in our lives, when things are good, we fast for what purpose? For the same reason they fasted in the Old Testament, the same reason they fasted in the New Testament, they fasted to be humbled before God, to humble their soul before God so they can come into the presence of God, not filled with pride, not with their ego driving the relationship, but humility. So whether it be triggered by tragedy or to petition God or voluntary crisis, fasting is to be the primary purpose is to be humbled before the living God. For you to intentionally say to yourself through through lack of food, out of my way, me, because I want to see God. I want to focus on God. Out of my way, me, so that your focus is not on you but on him. And as holistic beings... And we've talked about this before, body, mind, and soul. What we're doing is we are, we're taking away something from the body to, to uh, impact the spirit, to impact the soul, to bring about humility of spirit. So how does this physical denial of food, I mean, right down to it, how does my not eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner impact my spiritual condition? I mean, that's a legitimate question. Because you're, you're going to want to say, I like eating. I don't like being hungry. I want to eat. Why should I? When we fast, we acknowledge several things, one of which is our inordinate love and desire for the physical. Right? Our inordinate desire for physical things, whether it be food or fame or clothes or you can add to that list. When we fast, we acknowledge our complete and total dependence upon God. When we say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, in our fasting, you'll mean that a lot more than when your belly's full. When you say, Lord, give me this day our daily bread soon. Because you'll feel the hunger pangs and you'll realize that God does actually sustain you. When you fast, you say to God, I know I do not deserve the daily bread that I ask for. What I deserve is eternal starvation. That's what I deserve. 
when we fast, we say to God, I am sorry for my sins and I acknowledge before you how grievous they are in your eyes. When we fast, we say to God, I long for you more than I long for lunch. I long for you more, for you to fill me with the bread of life so that I will never be hungry again, so that I'll know that true spiritual nourishment. In talking with some people about this, they would say, you know what, I don't see anything wrong with humility. I think it's a biblical virtue, but there are things that I need more than humility. So if if you're talking about something I need, I need to be humbled, I'm thinking of a list of other things. And I said, well, like what? And these were some that were offered up. I don't need humility. I need direction. I have no direction in my life. Psalm 25, verse 9. God says, God guides the humble in what is right, and he teaches them his way. He guides and directs the humble. You say, well, direction is not my problem. What I need, I need salvation. I need a saving grace. Psalm 18, 27. God saves the humble, but brings low those whose eyes are haughty. You say, you know what? Salvation and direction is not my big concern. I need God's grace. Okay. Proverbs 3, God mocks proud mockers, but gives what? Grace to the humble. I'll give you one more. You say, you know what? I'm, I'm so glory starved. I just need, I need someone to say, hey, you know what? This isn't how you were made. James chapter 4, verse 10. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will what? He will lift you up. He will lift up your name. Humility. Humility brings in grace. It brings in salvation. It brings in this this being lifted up by God. So if you say, you know, humility is not my problem. I need these other things. God's saying, humility is your problem because you're still filled with pride. Biblical fasting You selectively, listen closely now, at specific times will cultivate a humble heart so that we can see God clearly and worship him properly. You selectively at proper times will humble the heart. So direction and salvation and grace will be poured out from God and received by him. In other words, the ultimate purpose of fasting is never to fast. The ultimate purpose of fasting is God. It's to have him. It's to know him more intimately than you do when your belly's full. It's to see him more clearly than you do after that seven-course dinner. It's him. So there's great historical and biblical precedence for fasting. The purpose is simple. It's to be humble before God. And I, I don't know that any of us honestly can say, I don't need that. I need that in multiple doses, humility before God. I need to be humbled before God every single day because my pride goes before me and I make a mess of everything. So what about the pitfalls? Are there any dangers to this? Christ gives us a couple major ones, one in particular. Look at verse 16. The deceptive dangers. No different than prayer or almsgiving. There's one here. This is a little more theatrical um, and kind of fun to study too. Verse 16, Jesus says, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. In other words, they're doing it to put on a show. They're, they're literally, they're acting. The word's perfect here. They are, they're putting on a show, they're putting on makeup, and they're going out and they're presenting themselves in such a way that people will say, oh, how pitiful, oh, how pious, oh, how holy that person must be. Look at them. In fact, the word here, I love disfigured faces. It's so great. He says the word gloomy 
this look they're taking on in the Greek, it's skuthropos. I mean, that great word, skuthropos. And it literally means to present a mournful appearance, to disfigure their face. So they intentionally tried to look pathetic and pitiful and, and hungry and pained. They intentionally put that on. And when it says disfigured their face, he's talking about they didn't wash, right? They didn't comb their hair. They didn't shave. They didn't anoint themselves with oil. They just went out. In fact, they probably, instead of combing their hair, they ruffled it up a bit. And amongst some who fasted, not all, but some, they would take ashes and they would put ashes upon their head. And so imagine this look. I mean, it's fantastic, right? They're disheveled, probably in sackcloth. They're disheveled. They didn't brush their teeth. They didn't shave. Their hair is going every which way. And then they put ashes on their head. And then when they would cry, the ashes would co-mingle with the tears. And it was, I mean, it had to be like right out of a scene from, you know, Michael Jackson's thriller, you know, where all these, it must have been fantastic. Some of you are not old enough to know that, right? I'm not going to encourage you to go watch it, but great lengths, great pain, great suffering. All for what? To show. It's a show to be seen by men. So the men would go, oh, wow, how devout, how pious, how holy. God sees in secret. He sees through the veil. And I would argue that most people see through it too. Most people do, right? We go, that's, that's pathetic. What are you doing? What are you doing? There was a gentleman years ago that, that came to church one Sunday. And the previous Sunday, he hated the sermon. Not because of what I preached. He just hated what the word of God said. And he came the following Sunday and he, is, he, he had a t-shirt on. And he came in. I had already started preaching. He comes in and sits down in the back. You talk about a distraction. And he, his shirt was ripped and his hair was not, his face was not shaven. And his hair was sticking up. And I thought, oh my, oh my, oh my, my. He got my attention and we talked afterwards. But I don't think it was my attention he was trying to get. It was everybody else around. He had his reward in full. Jesus says, don't do it like this. Don't be an actor. Verse 17, he said, When you fast, assuming they were going to, assuming that we were going to, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. In other words, he's saying, look normal. However you normally look. And it may be a little bit disheveled. It may not be so disheveled. But however you normally look, that's how you're supposed to look. Because it was common for the Jews and other surrounding nations to wash themselves, to, to purify themselves before they ate. And they would use oil. Sometimes it was a, um, uh, there was a sweet oil and there was an olive oil. And they would use it to anoint certain parts of their body. Um, in, in the Near Eastern sun, it was a dry climate. And it would not only help preserve their skin from getting you know, dry and cracked, but... The ones that had a bit of perfume and an odor in it, it helped prevent the malodorous odors of the day. I mean, it's not like they had dial and they put on a little deodorant, right? These were the things they normally did. And so what Christ is saying to us, we'll, we'll do a, a, a 2012 American translation. He's saying, if you shower, shower. In fact, he's saying, if you don't shower, you should shower. Shower, brush your teeth, comb your hair, shave. Do all the things that you would normally do so that when you go to work or you go to church or you are going to your neighbor's house and you're fasting, they'll have no idea that you're fasting. That's how you do it. And he says, if you're fasting, do not sit at a table with people who are eating and drool, right? And do not look at their food and, and think, oh. And, and don't fast when your mother's invited you over for Thanksgiving dinner. 
In other words, he's saying, you don't want people to know that you're doing this secret discipline. This discipline that ushers you through humility into the presence of God. It is for God's eyes only. I mean, look at, look at verse 18. Fast in such a manner that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. He is the one that you want to see the fasting. And not to bring glory to yourself, but to humble yourself so that you can see him. Because he already sees you. Now, really quickly, the Bible does not prescribe when to fast. It does not prescribe how to fast. There's wisdom in the Bible. I'm not saying that. But it doesn't say fast this day for this long. It doesn't say how. It doesn't say when. It doesn't say how often. That's a wisdom issue. Okay? And I'm not going to go into all that. I don't have time for that. But there are some great books. Um, Richard Foster wrote one. Help me with that. Is it Disciplines of the Faith? Help me with that. Celebration of Disciplines. Thank you. There's a great counterpart to that. Um, Dallas Willard wrote called Spiritual Disciplines. Read those two together. And they deal with fasting in part. Um, Piper wrote a great one years ago called Hungering for God. And it deals specifically with fasting. So there's great literature out there on how to do it. Not kill yourself or become religious. But the, the implication is that we will be fasting. Jesus does give us one rule. And it's right here in this passage. One rule. Have a right heart when you do it. Make sure it's because you want it to be something that pleases God and not man. The one motivation. We fast in secret to be seen only by our Father. As the psalmist said in Psalm 35, 31, we do that to humble our souls before the living God. And then he will see us. And when he sees us, he will reward us with the reward we want, which is him and his presence. Not the adoration and love of man. That means fasting can't be mechanical. It can't be religious. You can't fast on certain days all the time. If you do that, you say, I'm going to fast on the first and third Monday of every single month. And you always do that. Eventually, you're going to go, oh, it's Monday. Oh, 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 oh. Sunday night, you'll be dreaming about food, right? Because you know the next day, you're going to be hungry. We can't make it religious. It needs to be done wisely, and it needs to be done according to the heart, right? The right motivation. That means you can't fast to get a, spe- a spiritual umph in your prayers. You know, you really want something. So you're going to... You're going to Jesus said to get that demon out, you had to fast and pray. I really want this, so I'm going to fast and pray. I've never fasted before, but I really want God to answer this prayer. So here we go. Let's try it. It means that you won't fast to increase God's blessings. If I fast, he'll pour out the blessings on me. You don't fast to engage in some cheap magic trick. We fast to humble ourselves in the presence of God. Now, there's, there's a bit of irony here. And as I was contemplating this teaching... Um, another person that I was reading contemplated the same thing, not because it's utterly profound, um, but it's bizarre. In our country, in a, not as much today, but you go back 10 years, certainly 20 years, people didn't go to church with sackcloth ashes and an ill-shaven um, face. They weren't looking gloomy, just the opposite. We would get all dressed up. We put on our best clothes. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't get dressed up to go to church. But if you are getting dressed up to be seen by men, then you're no different than the person who's fasting. 
You're no different than that person with the gloomy face, right? You're getting dressed up because in our culture, success, money, security, that's when you're dialed in. And in some churches they teach, if you know God well and, he, and you love him properly, then you'll be blessed with all these things. And so your clothes tell everybody that God is blessing you and you're doing it right. It doesn't matter whether it's sackcloth and ashes or a three-piece suit, which no one wears today, wingtip shoes. Any time we take an external reflection of the internal movement of the heart and we make it something that brings us glory, we have the reward, right? I mean, the reward is what? You want to be seen by men, people see you. You got it. Not the reward from God. And this, this can be anything. It's not just how you look when you fast or how you dress when you go to church. It can be anything. D.A. Carson gave an example that I found just hysterical. And when I read it, I laughed out loud, which is probably strange. You do that too, I'm sure. He was teaching at a campus. And one of the groups at the campus, one of the, uh, the Bible groups, the, uh, the Christian groups on campus, they wanted to encourage the members of this particular group not to be embarrassed of their Bibles. And they said, listen, you'll walk from class to class and you'll carry Freud and you'll carry your chem book and you'll carry your American lit, but you won't carry your Bible. You have Bible class, carry your Bible. So, I mean, don't be embarrassed by it. And so people from this group started carrying their Bible around campus. And it actually did it. It increased dialogue about scripture and the gospel. But then he said, after a couple of weeks, I noticed something. He, started, he was watching some of these students and he said, some of the students started carrying really big Bibles Really big Bibles. And he thought, what are they doing? I mean, that's a big, heavy Bible. Why are you carrying that around? And after talking to some, he realized that they had moved from trying to overcome their embarrassment of carrying their Bible to wanting to what? To be seen by men. They were the hypocrites. They were the ones that with the disfigured faces. Or they were the ones dressed to the nines. They were carrying these big Bibles around going, that's right. How holy am I? How, I, I, I this Bible is so heavy I can barely carry it. That's how holy I am. And this is my penance. I'm going to carry it from class to class even though I never read it. Jesus started off this entire chapter with the word beware. He said, beware. Beware that you do not do your acts of righteousness for men in such a way that they will see you and bring you glory. Beware, beware. The intentional motivation, the internal motivation when it turns to an expression of self-glorification, when our worship for God turns into a desire to be worshipped or glorified, it has become destructive. Not only do you get your reward from man and not from God, but it is, it, it's ruinous. It's ruinous. They wanted to be noticed by others. They got it. They were noticed by others. So there's great historical precedence, whether we like it or not. The purpose is to be humbled before God, to see him and to hear him. There's a wrong way to do it. Mechanical, hypocritical, to be seen by men. Now, if you're still listening, going, let's go to Psalm because you haven't, you haven't convinced me that this is a reasonable endeavor for my hungry belly. I want you to listen closely. If you haven't listened, because this is where it turned for me this week. There's a particular power in the fasting the Bible speaks to directly. And I'd love to tell you that I got a, I got a real firm handle on this. It's going to take me another 10 years but I want to present it to you and I want you to start chewing on it and I don't want you to stop, all right? Pun fully intended. Ready? For those who have never fasted in Christ, last point, the power 
the power in fasting, the manna of Christ. For those who have never fasted in the spirit of Christ, you may think to yourself, this whole teaching is off. Because when I fast, I am miserable. My stomach does hurt and I get a headache. And so what I hear Jesus saying is, when you fast, don't look like you're fasting. When you're miserable, don't look like you're miserable. And it sounds as though Jesus is actually encouraging me to be a hypocrite. What do you say about that, Pastor? Unless Jesus knows something about this particular discipline or the disciplines in general that we do not. We will have to conclude that if Jesus is saying, fast, be hungry, be miserable in your stomach, but look otherwise, that that's either hypocrisy and he's teaching against himself or he knows something. Something about this kingdom. Something about this secret kingdom and this father who sees us in secret. Something that we don't know. Which, of course, is the answer. Not only something we don't know, but if we get and we engage in, It'll change the way we approach not only fasting, you will fast, but how you pray and how you give and how you read your Bible and how you attend church and how you minister to one another and how you go out and share the gospel. It'll change everything if you get this, this thing. So he's not saying fast and fake it, okay? It's not what he's saying. Fast, be in pain, but don't act like it. He is saying there's something else that we are missing. It's not as though Christ doesn't know that we are a generation that don't fast. It's not as though he didn't know it from the beginning of time, right? He knows that. He knows the predicament we're in. He knows the history. He knows the culture. He knows Satan moving against it. But he's saying, if you get this, this aspect of the kingdom life, this real power, this real food, this thing that's in secret can be game real to you, he goes, you'll change. And you will become someone who not only fasts, but you enjoy fasting. Thinking, what? Even for you teenage, refrigerator-emptying young men. I won't say anybody, but you're in here. Don't say, I could never fast. I can't go two hours without eating. That's, okay, so listen. Here we go. Ready? Sermon on the Mount and his entire ministry. What is Jesus doing? He's revealing the kingdom. Remember, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ came and he brought the kingdom down. And so kingdom life now is real. Kingdom power is real. Kingdom resources are available to kingdom citizens. Did you hear that? Real kingdom resources provided directly from God are now available to kingdom citizens, those who have been called and redeemed and are now part of the body of Christ. And these resources, this power is made available because what is Christ calling us to? He's saying, live a kingdom life. The entire sermon up to this point, what is he saying? This is how you're supposed to live. You've been redeemed, and now I'm calling you to live like this. And our first response is, we can't. And he says, well, of course you can't, but I'm enabling you. And we say, how? He says, with my power, with my resources. You say, I'm supposed to be pure in heart? Yes, he told us that early on. I'm supposed to mourn properly over my sin? Yes. I'm supposed to be humble and I'll inherit the earth? Yes. I'm supposed to hunger and thirst for righteousness and mercy and purity of heart? I'm supposed to be a peacemaker? I'm supposed to be salt? I'm supposed to be light? How? How? By God's nourishment. 
by God's food, by God's manna. Now, this isn't some, you know, metaphysical dialogue or rhetoric. I'm not just trying to say something to get you all pumped up. This is real. These are real resources, spiritual spiritual resources that will supply your physical needs as well. How many of you still don't believe me? I can see the skepticism in some of your faces. This understanding, learning how to fast in secret by the power of the Holy Spirit will enable our bodies and souls to be nourished rather than pine away. We will not be miserable. So you're not being a hypocrite. You say, I feel miserable. You won't be. Misery, you'll be changed, you'll be different, but you won't be miserable. Why? Because we will find in the secret presence of God, listen, in the secret presence of God, abundant strength, abundant joy, and abundant nourishment that does not come from the flesh. It does not come from our will. It does not come from a cheeseburger. It does not come from being raised in the church. It comes directly from God, his hand, especially when you fast. And if you fasted in this manner, you know exactly what I'm talking about, where he actually nourishes you and you're strengthened. Well, let me explain it more. Before Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert, after his baptism, remember, he goes out in the desert, he fasts for 40 days. And we read that and we go, 40 days? Is that a typo? Did they mean 40 hours? Did he mean four days? 40 days. And we just gloss right by that. This is a man who was fully human. That's our Christology. Fully human, fully God. How did a fully human man fast for 40 days? And at the end, be strong. He wasn't fasting and pining away. He didn't come before Satan unable to speak. He spoke the word of God. He quotes the word of God. He strengthened after he fasts. How'd that happen? What was going on here? Does it make any sense? Or does it make sense? Matthew chapter 4, verse 33, the tempter came to Jesus and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Why? So you can eat. Because I know you're starving. You haven't eaten for 40 days. You're starving. Right now, you have the power. Have these stones into bread. Sit down and feast. And our Lord's reply is It's utterly profound, not just in regards to the discipline of fasting. It is profound in how we live this kingdom life. Utterly profound. And if you get this, if you get what he says, you will then understand the kingdom of God better and the kingdom life and power that he's calling us to live right now. Right now. His answer to Satan reveals resources. Kingdom resources available so that you can fast and you can pray and you can give and you can serve and you can sacrifice, not begrudgingly, not angrily, but with power and with joy. Imagine that. Imagine giving with great joy. Imagine fasting with great joy. Imagine serving the least and the last and the lost with great joy. Jesus Christ answers Satan by quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Listen to what he says. Most of you have this memorized. 
He said to Satan, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Literally, that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And this is key. It's key to understanding how he fasted for 40 days and yet got stronger. And it's key for us to understand how we can fast and how we can engage in the disciplines and be nourished from on high. The passage, quick way to study the Bible. When Jesus or someone else quotes the Old Testament, stop and go to it. It's a clue. It's a key to what he's teaching. And so when you read Matthew 4.4, and it says in your footnote, he's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, go to that. What was Jesus quoting? What was the context in which he was making the statement? The bread or nourishment to which Jesus was referring is manna. It's manna. Deuteronomy 8.3, I'm going to read to you the entire verse. Jesus only quoted part. Moses said to the Israelites, listen, it's fantastic. God humbled you, causing you to hunger. Why did they? He made them fast. It was a forced fast, right? He made them fast. Why? To humble them. Why? Listen. And and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, God brought a fast to the Israelites, and then he fed them. Why? So they could see that their complete and total dependence, body, mind, and soul, was God. That God must nourish them. He must provide them the energy and the power and the sustenance of life. God. Not Safeway or Costco, but God. And he sustained them and nourished them, body, mind, and soul, with this spiritual food called manna. Now, manna is, the word, the translation of the word is really hard because it literally means, it literally means, what is it? (laughs) I love that. They go, what is it? That's it. Manna. Or whatever it is. That's, That's what the word means. But this whatever, literally whatever, manna, this whatever it was, had the nourishment, it had the vitamins, it had the minerals, it had the calories to sustain them for 40 years. I mean, it's like the best vegetable, protein, fruit shake you could make. It was perfect food for sustaining life. And it was heavenly food that came directly from God's mouth. Directly from his mouth, his word. It was not the product of any created thing. It was not the mixture, conglomeration of things that God had already made. It was from heaven to man, from his mouth. Spiritual food. You say, oh, I know you're going good. Be patient. In order to meet our physical needs, we're metabolic machines, right? We've got to have calories. We've got to have food coming in so that we can have the energy to sustain our lives. And so we consume food. But to God, the energy supply is inexhaustible. It's infinite, right? I mean, the power and nourishment that God has to pour out on you, redeemed soul, is infinite. And we see that power being manifest throughout the life of Christ. It was the same power that Jesus used to raise Lazarus three days gone from the grave. The same power to heal the centurion's servant with only a word. The same power to feed 5,000 people with a few pieces of bread and a few leftover fish. Fish. 
How? Say, how how did he do that? It was a miracle. Well, of course it was. But how? Spiritual food, manna from heaven, God to man. And that means that he can directly nourish us and sustain us when we fast. Say, well, what are you talking about? When you fast, he provides the spiritual sustenance and food, the spiritual manna, to not only get you through the fast, but strengthen you through the fast. So that fasting, if you've tried it and it's been miserable, and you go, it didn't work for me, it just made me angry and irritable, then you didn't engage in spiritual fasting. You didn't engage in biblical fasting. Because biblical fasting builds us up. It makes us stronger. It nourishes the soul. And God provides that. He provides that source of energy and power. Now, before we get crazy, (laughs) you say, that's it. I'm not eating for a month. Jesus ate. He was fully human. He had to eat, right? We must eat too, okay? So we're not saying don't eat the physical food. Lord, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to shop. Just provide the man and bring it to my table, okay? That's not what he's saying here. But Jesus ate physical food And more importantly, he constantly and daily fed on spiritual food. He was constantly feeding from his father's hand. The source of power and strength that that was derived not from protein shakes or double cappuccinos, but from being humbled in the presence of his father. And he's revealing this kingdom dynamic to us. And he's saying, join me. He's saying, fast and join me. Join me. See, Christ lived in the present reality of the spiritual and the physical. We're so wrapped up in the physical. Almost everything we do is driven by the physical. And Christ is saying, they're both real. And to the kingdom citizen, he's saying they're both available. This is huge. Because when you, when you come to, when God saves you and he brings you into his kingdom, he says, now you're a son, now you're a daughter, now you're part of this kingdom. He's saying, listen, there are all these resources that are now Yours, they're available to you. My wife and I, we moved, we moved to Boulder Creek before Scotts Valley years ago. And right down the street was a swim club. Some of you actually went there. And it was great. At the swim club, you, there was a pool. Hmm? There was a pool. And there were basketball courts. And there was ping pong. And there was, um, is it shuffleboard? The real shuffleboard? The long sticks, we broke a few of those. You know, they, they also work for great swords. Um, <clears throat> we became members at this swim club. And I remember going down there. The boys were little. And the owner's taking us around. And he said, and here's the weight room. And the kids said, can we use that? Yeah. And here's the, the hot tub. Can we use, can we, yeah. And here's the ping pong table. And they kept saying, can we use that? As though, and he kept saying, yes. The resources are now available to you because now you're part of this club. Christ is saying, you've been brought into the kingdom and yet you're still living as though there's no spiritual kingdom. You've been brought in to live the eternal life now and yet every day you're thinking about clothes and food and bills and mortgage. And he's saying lovingly, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? Why do we continually miss this very real spiritual world that is present and powerful? Why? This kingdom dynamic. John chapter 4. There's a verse at the end of the dialogue that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well 
that we blow by. We blow right by it. You know this really quickly. They're hungry. It's afternoon. He sends the disciples into town to get something to eat. He stops at the well. And he encounters a Samaritan woman. And he has this dialogue. And we all know the dialogue. I mean, it's taboo that he's talking to her. It's taboo. She's a Samaritan woman, right? And they have this great dialogue. And he reveals to her that she not only has not one husband, she has five. He basically gets her to confess her sin. He tells her things that he cannot know unless he's a prophet, unless he's the Messiah. She runs into town and she tells everybody, hey, I met this guy at the well. He told me things about my life that there's no way he could have known about. Is he the Christ? And people start coming out to meet him. They want to know, is this the Christ? Well, in the meantime, the disciples had come back. And they say to Jesus, Rabboni, eat. You're hungry, eat. And he says something. He says something. It's extraordinary. Let me read it to you. The disciples say, Rabbi, eat something. And he said to them in John 4, 32, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. What? I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, <laughs> could someone have brought him food? Did someone sneak it in before we got here? Did, who, who, brought you, who brought you the In-N-Out burger? Lord, how'd you get it? And then Christ says, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. The Bible is full, especially well, the New Testament in particular, the Gospels in particular, full of these teachings of both worlds happening simultaneously, spiritual and physical. They're, they're commingled and they're intermingled constantly. We have that all throughout sacred scripture. And so we can read this verse and we can do this. We can say, oh, I know what he's doing. Because if you keep reading this, he's just, he's just setting them up for the teaching on the Great Commission. He's trying to, tra- this, is a, this is a literary transition, dialoguing. You can do that. You can say it's metaphorical. And he's simply trying to describe the ultimate hunger he has to do the will of God. And that when he does that work, that he's satisfied. Before we turn to allegory or metaphor, I think it would be wise for us at least to ask the question, what would the, how did the disciples respond to it? Because they were inquiring about physical food. Christ was hungry. What would the statement have meant to them who said, Rabbi, eat something? And then he said, I have food that you know nothing about. And then they ask, where did he get it? If we take this passage, now listen closely, as a kingdom teaching. If we understand that Christ is trying to communicate to them something that they do not know about, but he wants them to know about, then we might see it as real spiritual nourishment for his physical body. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, I have spiritual resources that satisfy my physical hunger. I have a father and there's an entire spiritual realm where there's infinite energy, infinite power and food to satisfy. In other words, Jesus said, I have food that you do not know about. Not as a cliche, not as a metaphor, but as a life-sustaining, life-nourishing food from his father. And we can go one step further. This this reliance upon God is what shaped his whole life. It shaped who he was, how he lived, how he loved, how he ministered, how he sacrificed, and how he died for our sins. 
he's revealing the source of his character and his power. He's saying it comes directly from God. It comes directly from God. Did he eat regular food? Of course he did. He was fully human. He had to. But more importantly, he ate spiritual manna daily. The heavenly food that nourished him and strengthened him spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And physically. I say, no, no, that has to be physical food. No, spiritual food sustaining him and nourishing him physically. And he's calling us kingdom citizens to live in light of this, these resources as well. So that when we see his character and his love and his passion for holiness and his submission, when we feed off him, surely some of those will come to us as well. If we come to him and we eat the manna the Father offers us through the cross. What is that manna? You know it, right? It's Christ himself. In fact, Christ himself commands you to eat him. (laughs) He said, eat the bread of life. Gospel manna. John chapter 6. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he said, your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. And then he says, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone, listen to this, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live, live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So Jesus says, listen, not only if you eat me, will you not die, but you will have life and have it abundantly. You'll come into my kingdom and you'll be nourished by my sacrifice on the cross. So fasting goes hand in hand with feeding. Fasting goes hand in hand with being nourished in Christ. Spiritual fasting is not pining away. It's being built up. It's not getting weak and and frail. It's Christ filling us with him because he is the spiritual manna that comes through the cross. When you fast, you're not supposed to go hungry. You're supposed to be filled. Through his word, through prayer, through giving, through serving, through the body, through intimacy, through Bible. And the effects of our turning to this true food, this nourishment in Christ, will be evident in our lives. We'll see growth in wisdom and knowledge and love and obedience and compassion and mercy and grace and How many of you are saying, I'm still not going to fast? I don't believe. I believe the spiritual world's real. You know, heaven and hell and angels and demons. I believe all that. But I'm not buying this power. I'm not buying the energy. I'm going to rely with my five-hour energy. Thank you very much. Christ is saying it's real. In fact, we can go one step further. It's more real than this. The spiritual is eternal. It's always been more real. So greater resources, greater power, greater nourishment. So we must ask ourselves, why do we spend our lives spinning and turning and striving for all that is physical? When as a citizen of this kingdom, you have the ping pong table and the hot tub and the basketball court too. It's not just the pool. John Piper has a great quote in that book, Hunger for God. 
recommended read. He has a great quote. He says, do you have a hunger for God? If we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because we have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things. And there's no room for the great. If we are full of what the world offers, then perhaps a fast might express or even increase our soul's appetite for God. And then he writes, between the dangers of self-denial and self-indulgence is the path of pleasant pain called fasting. And it's pleasant because God nourishes you in it. It's pleasant because you receive from him the resources he promises us through Christ. That means when you fast or pray or give in secret, when you go to that secret place, when you go to the word, when you meditate on God's laws and his love and his mercy, you testify, you're testifying to that other reality, that real thing, the spiritual world and all of its power and all of its majesty and all of its resources now made available to you. When you pray, you're doing that, right? When we gather on Wednesday nights and we pray, we're testifying to that spirit world being real. Or what are we doing praying? And Christ saying, when you fast, it's the same thing. You are submitting yourself to God to nourish you and sustain you and grow you. The disciplines of the faith are a means of entering into God's presence in a very real and yet supernatural way. It's why we struggle with prayer, because it sounds like we're just talking, that we're missing the spiritual component, that it's real. It's why we struggle with almsgiving, why we're giving to the poor. Because we don't hear Christ saying, when you've given to the least of these, you've given to me. We don't believe that. We believe it's just physical. And when we fast and when we hunger in our bellies, we think that we're just hungry and we need food. And we're not actually entering the throne room in the presence of God, seeing him and being nourished by him. The disciplines are avenues into kingdom life and all its resources. I know why people who don't pray and don't fast and don't read their Bibles and don't give. And don't, I know why they feel like they're pining away. Because they are. They're not being fed. They're not being fed by, by the word of God. When I mean that, coming from his mouth, there's no connection. Nothing but starvation. An example to close. Do you remember in C.S. Lewis's novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Do you remember how the kids are in the house and they're playing hide-and-go-seek and Lucy hides in the wardrobe, right? She's making her way to the back and poof, out she comes into Narnia. And she goes and she meets different creatures and different food and different drink and different powers, Right? And she comes back, and she's the youngest. Lucy's the youngest of the four. She comes back, and she tells her two brothers and her older sister this whole new world, and they don't believe her. They don't believe her. Until, out of necessity, fleeing from the owner of the house, they all go into the wardrobe, and they're all trying to find a hiding place, and boom, they all come through on the other side. And then they believe that this other world is real that there are real creatures 
and real powers and real resources that throughout the story were now made available to them. Christ is saying, listen, brothers and sisters, there's a whole nother realm that's real. Don't just believe it here, but believe it here. Know it's real. Know that there is power. Know that there are resources that have been made available to you because you've been brought into the kingdom by the grace of Christ, by his life and his death and his sacrifice. He didn't just save us from hell. He saved us into the kingdom now and calls us to live in light of that kingdom now. If only we had the faith to trust and believe. For those of you who read the book, were you not monumentally frustrated with David and Peter and Susan? Weren't you saying, it is real. Stop mocking your sister. Because you know, right? If only they had the faith to trust and believe. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.20, he said, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Do you believe that? Whom have I in heaven but you, says the psalmist. And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Father, you gloriously revealed this kingdom throughout the Old Testament, but most spectacularly in the coming of your Son. And you not only revealed it to us, Father, but through his life, death, and resurrection, you call us into it as well. Into a life that knows both the physical and spiritual realities into a life of of complete and total reliance and dependence upon you to nourish and sustain our bodies, our minds, and our souls. You call us into this, Lord, and how, how grievous it must be to you and how foolish it is for us to keep our eyes fixed on this place and this world and these things and this food rather than acknowledging that you are the giver and sustainer and nourisher of life. May we be like Christ saying to our friends or family, I have food you know nothing about. And I am eating and I am drinking deeply from these kingdom resources that Christ has offered to me. And he's offered to you. Father, give us the wisdom. Give us the faith to see this kingdom for what it is so that we might live glorious lives fully nourished completely sustained radiant and glorious for you so that you would be glorified in all that we do I pray Lord that that we would see that we are pining away as we chase after food and money and clothes and power we are pining away I pray that we would forsake that life 
and turn to you and be nourished from your mouth, from your word with the spiritual manna. This day, Lord, and this week, for Camden Avenue, I pray some of us would fast at the right time, for the right length, that we would say, you know what? Maybe there's something to this thing, that we would fast, not to be glorified by men, but to be humbled before you so that you will build us up. I pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.